Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 25th of March, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Cold News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, as usual, on Friday, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century War. Welcome to the program, Patrick. Great, Great to be with you, Mike. And we'll get straight on because we've got a lot to get through. So, uh, well, here they all are. There's their family photograph, their holiday pick, whatever you want to call it. This is the NATO summit, the uh, extraordinary summit, uh, which took place in Brussels yesterday. Uh, Allied leaders agreed to reset NATO's longer-term deterrence and defence posture across all domains, land, sea, air, cyber and space. This reflects the new security reality resulting from President Putin's uh, brutal and unprovoked war in Ukraine. And that was the uh, official family photograph. Once it got to number 10 Downing Street, Patrick, it became that. Uh, so there you go. The the propaganda started getting pumped out once it got on the number 10 Downing Street uh, Twitter feed. Do they all shout Slava Ukraini? Well, 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 yes, quite possibly. We might hear a bit of that later on. But uh, in the meantime, there they all are. They were having their deliberations yesterday. Um, and well, it began with, uh, after the, the, the event, there was a press conference with, Jet, with Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, we've got a couple of excerpts from this. Um, so let's uh, have a look at the first one. And he's talking about this reset uh, that they uh, mentioned in their press release. So we are resetting NATO's deterrence and defense for the long term. Uh, with more troops, uh, with uh, more air assets and more maritime capabilities. We have already increased our presence in the East, and today we decided on four new battle groups, and the leaders uh, agreed to task our military commanders to provide options uh, for uh, a long-term reset of our uh, presence, our military posture in the Eastern part of the Alliance and across the whole Alliance. Uh, details will be then uh, decided at uh, our summit uh, in June. But that comes on top of what we have already done. So this is uh, uh, long term. Uh, we are prepared for long haul because uh, uh, we can already today say that, uh, uh, that the, the Russian invasion, President Putin's invasion of Ukraine uh, has changed our security environment uh, for the long term. It's a new reality. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a new normal, and NATO is responding for the long term. So all the buzzwords there, Patrick, reset, new normal, everything, uh, but they're there for the long term. Prepared for the long haul. So, yeah. so NATO-like uh, statements from the US, like the British, are saying they're, they're interested in a long war in Ukraine. This is what they're, they're very excited about this. This has given them a new raison d'etre. This has breathed new life into NATO. That's what everybody's saying. Yes. Uh, this is great. NATO is now relevant again. Uh, NATO was brain dead, but not anymore. Now they have a purpose and they've never been more united. How many times have you heard people repeat that? If you have to repeat it that many times, then, uh, then I'm suspicious that there might actually be some uh, problems uh, under the surface there, but we'll talk about that in a minute. In a second. But of course, the big problem for them uh, is energy. Patrick, so this is what Stoltenberg had to say about that. NATO allies are coordinating their efforts when it comes to also uh, energy security, and it was also addressed in the meeting uh, today uh, to uh, step up supplies, to diversify uh, uh, sources of supply, and, uh, and also, also to reduce dependence on supplies from, from uh, Russia. Uh, and uh, and uh, later on today, I also participate in the G7 meeting, and of course, in different frameworks, G7, working with the EU, uh, uh, there are different formats where NATO allies 
address the need uh, to strengthen energy security and reduce dependence on, on, uh, on, on Russian oil and, uh, and gas. So how can you be at war with someone and still buying oil and gas from them? But anyway, the, the... energy security, uh, he's talking about energy policy. What are, is NATO, in, are they economists now, as well as being politicians? They're talking about freedom and democracy. Now it's about where you need to buy your energy from. These are economic matters, Mike. These are, these are normally uh, from elected leaders to help make these policies. They're not military matters. Russia never militarized or weaponized its energy supply. They never did. They're still delivering it. Yes. They're still delivering Ukraine gas. They haven't stopped the gas to Ukraine. So Russia's honoring all of its contracts. So, but who's doing the weaponization of energy? It's not coming from Russia. Russia. It's uh, coming from the West. So just before we came on air, there was uh, the news came out that uh, the US and the EU have announced a huge deal for liquefied natural gas. So. Um, you know, we've got to stop, uh, reduce the amount of uh, transportation of goods across oceans because that's uh, really bad for the climate. But don't worry about that. In this case, uh, they're going to be uh, taking, well, they're, they're certainly wanting to get 10% of the gas that it currently gets from Russia, from the United States by the end of the year. <clears throat> uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, that's that's going to be a huge quantity of, of tankers pumping this stuff across. And I don't think that the, the U.S. is not going to subsidize the price, are they? They're going to try to make a profit off this. Of course. So what's that going to do to the price of energy in Europe? Is it going to go up or down? It's going to go up. It's going to go up. It's There's already things driving it up, Mike, and it's going to go up even further. Again, this is not because of an act of God. This is not because of natural organic causes. It's not because of Putin. It's because of policy by our governments. That's why the price is going up. Choices made by our elected leaders in Europe, in the UK, in North America. Uh, but one area where Putin does have a choice is whether he's prepared to deal uh, in energy in well, which currency he's going to deal in. Uh, and so where has that gone? Well, what happened this week? Uh, the U.S. exercised its nuclear option, the mother of all sanctions. They froze 300 billion, that's with a B, yeah. 300 billion, that's more than the GDP of a lot of first world countries, of Russian foreign currency reserves. So Russia has responded. And they're including gold in that as well? Uh, most likely, yes, yes most likely. So, I mean, not only can Russia not make the balance of payments for its debt, international debt, which would normally pay on a schedule, right. uh, they forced it to default, basically. Um, so, so Russia's responded and it said, look, there's no point in us having euros or dollars in our bank accounts. So if we're selling you gas or oil, uh, if you're from any of the what they call the risky countries now, these are the countries that are involved in the sanctions. Right. Uh, if you're from the risky countries, we won't accept euros or dollars for oil or gas because we can't do anything with them. Russia can't spend them. Uh, they can't spend them in the West. They can't hold them in bank accounts. So they said, Putin said, you know what? I want rubles. Give me rubles. We'll give you gas. We'll give you oil. Give us rubles. So now the West is going to have to go on to the Moscow currency exchange or some other international exchange, buy rubles, keep rubles on reserve, that's the key word, reserve, in order to pay for Russian energy. And it's not going to be confined to oil and gas. This may be extended to food, to wheat. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? That means that the ruble becomes a reserve currency, a world reserve currency. It just happened like this, one sentence from Putin, and it all of a sudden, the tables of the post-World War II uh, US-led world order 
have just been shifted with one sentence from Putin. They waited and they made their move. And now what happened to the ruble? It immediately reacted on the currency markets, increased in value, made a 9% jump uh, midweek and then sort of tailed off around 100. I didn't look at the uh, exchange rate today, but it's recovered uh, a large percentage of the value that it lost when the sanctions war began Mm. a month ago. So, you know, in terms of damage to the Russian economy, who's suffering right now because of these sanctions and, and energy prohibitions. We are. We are in the West. The, the price of fuel in Russia is not skyrocketing. It's not going up. The price of food, it's minimal. I spoke to an economist in Moscow uh, on Tuesday and uh, 10% on food staples, mm-hmm. that's, what the, that's the shock mm-hmm. that they've gotten. And on imports, it's double. Of course, that's expected, right. anything from Europe. Uh, but so, so they're not, in terms of food and fuel, Russians aren't uh, suffering. So, you know, you're not going to get your regime change. Biden says, hey, it's not about that. It's not about behavioral changes. They've now said sanctions is just about punishing Russia and Russians. So anyway, this is a major, major thing. Mm. And this is one of many in a series of events. Let's look at this situation on screen here. The ruble surges after Putin ditches dollars and euros for Russian oil and gas here. And this is a top economist from the Eurozone here, Mike Klaus. Uh, Vistensen. He said every time, or they, the New York Times saying every time a Western country bought a barrel of oil or cubic meter of gas, uh, it would be prop, uh, propping up his domestic currency. They're talking about the ruble. Yeah. So the economists here in the Eurozone are saying if you're invoiced in rubles, you've got to go out and buy rubles. I don't know if there is a workaround. Guess what? There's no workaround. That's it. If you want, if you want the energy, you've got to pay in rubles. Okay. So that means the dollar is a reserve currency is basically been damaged and other countries will be getting rubles as well. Now, what was right before this? India buys uh, Russian oil in what's called a rupee ruble mechanism. So this is a bilateral trade between Russia and India in rupees and rubles, completely cutting out the dollar and the euro. Mm. So this means that the, the demand for dollars and, and perhaps euros as well uh, will drop. and uh, And so... That means that the price of our currency is going to drop as well. This means we're going to experience inflation, okay? Even if you have a bachelor's in economics, you would be able to tell anybody this. But we're wondering, do any of our elected leaders even understand uh, undergraduate level economics? Forget undergraduate level. How about high school level economics, supply and demand? Do you remember that equation? I don't buy that they don't understand what they're doing. I think they understand very well what they're doing. I th- it fits very well with certain policies that have been announced from certain uh, Switzerland-based think tanks and international organizations. Well, certainly that crowd, the, w- the World Economic Forum crowd, they're loving this. The Greens are loving it because, you, but then you have to, they're loving it, but isn't this a suicide pact for a lot of people uh, economically? You're talking about the deindustrialization. Of, um, of the West, of the West, especially yeah. Germany, especially Germany, and you wonder what kind of national lobotomy has taken place uh, in Germany. It's incredible. So the, what you're going to have is a bifurcated global order, a multipolar order, multipolar based on different reserve currencies right. potentially, because Russia's holding the commodities. You can have all the digital C- CBDCs you want. 
But at the end of the day, who's got the, the energy? Physical stuff. Who's got the commodity? That's what matters. And if Russia says we want gold, then you're going to have to pay in gold. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. So in this case, it's rubles. So the 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 world order shift is continuing here. Take a look at this. Uh, the next one here: the Gulf states defy Biden with <laughs> Bashar al-Assad visiting the Gulf states. Can you believe this? This is really an incredible turn of events here. The Syrian president really was persona non grata in the Gulf. The Gulf states funded and armed the jihadis that destroyed uh, his country. Uh, and now he is basically being invited into the court of the Emirates of Saudi Arabia. Look at this, opening relations potentially with Saudi Arabia, okay? So th th this is throwing the whole US foreign policy leverage machine off. So what's happened? Has, has Putin had a word with uh, bin Salman and the others and saying, hey, you know, we've got to work together because, because your dollars are not safe. If you fall foul of the uh, whims of the political winds in Washington or the woke brigades, or they want to take out an economy, they're going to freeze your assets. So then all of a sudden it's risky. Everyone's figuring this out. And they're like, we have to hedge now against the dollar. The Chinese are already doing this as well. Yeah. So they're accelerating the demise of the dollar as a world reserve currency. This is bad news for if you're living in America or you're living in Europe or you're living in the UK and so much of this business in dollars and euros is how the economies circulate, run, and yeah. how price indexes are set and things like this. They, they, now this might go to plan if you're looking long range for Klaus Schwab's uh, view of the world, but the, the, the people that we have elected to make the decisions for us, to make the to protect the public. That's why we elect them to protect us economically, right? Right. And to protect us in other ways. And they've absolutely failed here. What, the decisions they've made have damaged and hurt the working class and the middle class. These were intentional decisions. And if they were too stupid to know what the results were going to be, then you know we have some of the dumbest people you can imagine in public office. And I, I think if you took a poll right now, I can speak for the United States, if you took a poll with the American, how do you rate the intelligence level of your average politician? Are they competent in economics? I think it's gonna be a really low score, okay? Lower even than the general public's knowledge themselves. What are they good at? Insider trading. Yes. They're good at things like that, but they have basically sold their populations down the river, and I'm afraid to say the same here in the UK and also in Europe. Indeed. Uh, and so what about Biden then? So Biden spoke to NATO. Well, we heard from the uh, illustrious Secretary General. bureaucrat, the banker, who's what? He's not going to be taking his banking job. Uh, no, he's not taking his banking job. We'll come on to that in a second. But he is getting another 12 months in post as a result of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, because he's the guy. He's you, the guy. You need, you need Jan in there. He's a, a steady pair of hands, right? So Biden made the trip out to Brussels to speak at NATO. And he was slurring his speech as usual. He managed to make it through the speech, but he let this little zinger out, and we're going to play this to you. And it's absolutely an incredible thing for a U.S. president to say. Listen to this. Nothing more to report. With regard to food shortage, yes, we did re re talk about food shortages. And, uh, and it's going to be real. The, the price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. So he's just announced food shortages. He's announced food shortages, but not only that, he's now changed 
the whole definition of sanctions. Now he's saying the sanctions aren't just going to hurt the Russians, but they're going to hurt you too. Yeah. So again, our, our, our elected leaders elected to do things to protect us, the public, to protect our economy, or are we electing them to damage our economy? Because that's the U.S. president at NATO coming straight out and saying, we're sanctioning. The sanctions are basically going to hit the West as well. Are they crazy? Are they really crazy? What, they're going to crater the entire Western economy for uh, Slava Ukraine? you got to be kidding me. That's what they're doing. That's what's being pushed right now. It is really unbelievable. Okay, so let's uh, come back to the illustrious Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, and he was asked, well, he's being asked a question here by a Ukrainian uh, journalist. So let's have a listen to this. General News Agency Interfax Ukraine, I would like to ask you if Polish leadership put at the table today for discussion the proposal to send peacekeeping mission to Ukraine, and if yes, what kind of discussion it was, and is there is some conclusion? Thank you. As we discussed the wide range of uh, issues, uh, and, uh, uh, and the message is that we have to stand united. Uh, and also that we need to uh, provide support to Ukraine, but at the same time, we have a responsibility uh, to ensure that this conflict do not uh, become a full-fledged war uh, between uh, NATO and Russia. And, uh, and that's also the reason why allies have made declared that we will not deploy uh, troops on the ground in, uh, in Ukraine, uh, because uh, the only uh, way to do that is to be prepared to engage in full uh, conflict uh, with uh, Russian uh, troops. So, uh, that's not what she wanted to hear, clearly, that the, but judging by the look on her face as, as the camera cut back to her uh, at that point, that's not what she wanted to hear. But basically, the message there is uh, the West is united, but we're not going to get directly involved. But of course, they are directly involved because they're directly involved on a cyber level. They're directly involved because they're sending arms and armaments in. There's directly involved because they've got proxies fighting on, on our behalf in the Ukraine uh, already. And we've got these troops that are supposed to be uh, absent without leave that are fighting in Ukraine. I'm highly skeptical that they're absent without leave. They've probably been given a tacit approval uh, to, to go. If not, they're being they're on assignment. Okay, but we're, coming, we're going to come back onto that subject in a second. But, but the point here is... Uh, they, they are talking about not having any boots on the ground at the same time that, uh, and therefore that Ukraine, well, the Ukrainians want to hear that, in fact, they're going to get their peacekeepers, they're going to get their no-fly zone. That, what is the average Ukrainian going to be thinking at this point, having heard that statement? Well, the longer this drags on, Mike, the, the average Ukrainian will start to become skeptical of, of a couple of things. One is the, uh, the canonization of uh, Vladimir Zelensky, okay? that he's no longer a godly saint. I don't even think he's regarded as such by the people of Ukraine. He will end up getting blamed because he actually put the country in this position to begin with by basically torpedoing the Minsk peace accords, which led to the uh, succession of hostilities uh, that we have seen now. Yeah. So, but the other thing is the peacekeepers, okay? There's a lot of uh, chatter right now uh, with NATO and between governments on who might be uh, a, peace, a potential peacekeeping force basically to put into Western Ukraine. We're talking in the area around uh, Lvov and uh, or Lviv, depending on how you pronounce that, and Poland. Right. We're, we're hearing Pol there's, a, there's a proviso for Polish peacekeepers as well. That's problematic. 
although they would sort of say, well, th th this wouldn't be a, a, a NATO Article 5 trap, okay? Uh, there's also Israel is in the conversation, Israeli peacekeepers. So, so what are they calling for here? Some kind of uh, demilitarized zone in the, in the Northwest? No, yeah, and a humanitarian corridor. Uh, is, that what, is that equivalent to Idlib? Yes, and we'll get to that in a minute. Right. Okay, the, the other country that's potentially in the frame here is Turkey. Okay, now Turkey, not such a bad choice. Well, uh, they've got some experience. They do have some experience, plus the, Turkey's developing a level of neutrality now that nobody had ever thought they would see from Turkey. And it's really not going to bode well for NATO because I do think the day might actually come where Turkey's going to leave NATO, and that day might be coming very soon if NATO continues in the direction that it is as a, as a belligerent, okay, let's not kid ourselves. We're in this crisis now largely because of NATO itself. And we'll explain to you why uh, in just a couple of minutes. And of course, Turkey has given hints at this, buying AS-400 uh, defense systems and so on. They, they have attempted a, a, a relationship with Russia, even despite having NATO membership. Yeah, Turkey's always uh, hedging its bets. It's always going to play both sides. That's the nature of where it sits on the, on the world map. And they, historically, they've always played that role. But the, the, that means, yes, that Western Ukraine would become an Idlib type. So instead of jihadis, you've got Nazis, okay? Right. You've got weapons pouring in over the por Polish border. So Poland becomes Turkey. Uh, in that sense. Yes. And Western Ukraine becomes Idlib. And so again, here we are backing the radicals, looking for a way to keep to have a little haven for whatever the radicals are. In, in, in Idlib, it was ISIS and Al-Qaeda that we, our governments protected and supported. Mm. We called them moderate rebels, but uh, of course, everybody knows what they really are now. Mm -hmm. uh, and here in Western Ukraine, it is just absolute reams of neo-Nazi brigades mm -hmm. and all sorts of extremism the worst people you can imagine, that's who we're arming. This is who we're giving political cover and trying to polish over, okay? So this is quite quite a situation right now. Now, in the meantime, the uh, chemical weapons narrative is still just bubbling under the surface, but uh, Stoltenberg was asked about that yesterday as well. Let's have a listen. You said in the statement that allies agreed to enhance preparedness and readiness for chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear threats. Is that based on credible intelligence that those threats could be imminent? And how does the alliance uh, strengthen its protection against those threats? Thank you. So we are concerned, um, partly because we see the rhetoric uh, and we see that Russia is uh, trying to create some kind of pretext accusing Ukraine, United States, NATO allies for preparing uh, to use uh, chemical and biological uh, weapons. And we have seen before that this uh, 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 a way of accusing others is actually a way to create, to create a pretext for do the same uh, uh, themselves. Uh, and, and of course, the accusations against Ukraine and NATO allies are absolutely false. Um, um, any use of chemical uh, weapons will um, uh, totally change the nature of the conflict. It will be a blatant violation of international uh, law. and. Um, uh, it will have uh, widespread consequences and, of course, be extremely uh, dangerous. Um, it will affect the people in Ukraine, but there's also a risk that will have a direct effect on people living in NATO countries because uh, uh, we can see contamination, we can see the spread of um, chemical agents or uh, biological uh, weapons into our uh, countries. Um, 
we also know that Russia has used chemical agents against its own opposition, and they have used it on NATO territory in Salisbury before. And we also know that Russia has facilitated, supported uh, uh, the Assad regime in Syria uh, when they used chemical weapons against their own population. So where, where do we start? Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Where do we start? I mean, Salisbury is NATO territory. Salisbury, so NATO has territory now. Yes. That's right. So no more sovereign territory. So even it's almost as bad as the EU, Mike. So where, where, where do we need to start this? He's, th this trope you keep hearing this started but from the US officials saying, well, Russia accuses other people of doing what it's about to do. Yeah. And, so that, and so if it happens, it's the Russians. So this is just an amazing device that's been pushed out um, by, and now Jan Stoltenberg's repeating the same trope. But in the same breath, he's accusing the Russia of, of wanting to release bio uh, uh, bio agents that are going to, uh, or sarin or whatever it's, imagine a big, a big cloud is going to drift over to Europe and then that's a violation of Article 5 because it drifted into NATO yep. territory. I mean, these people are out, completely out of their minds, okay, with this narrative. Now, who has the bio labs? Who funded the bio labs in Ukraine? Who funded, what, 11, 12, 13 that we know confirmed from the Kiev Embassy's website, U.S. Embassy in Kiev's website, that's the Pentagon. The Pentagon, the United States Defense Threat Reduction Agency, that's a U.S. program. Those are the biolabs. They're American. They're not Russian. So if any biological agents get released, whose fault is it? Well, I don't need to uh, tell people any more than they already know. We'll get to the biolabs in a minute. Uh, but So any, any use is, is crossing another red line. Okay, so they've, they've, they've set up all these traps, the Article 5 trap, now it's the chemical weapons. Russia has no uh, pedigree in uh, deploying chemical weapons. They didn't in Syria. And by the way, there is no credible evidence that Syria deployed chemical weapons in Syria either. Um, every single one of those high-profile incidents, whether it's in East Ghouta, whether it's in Khan Shahoun in 2017, or whether it's in Duma in 2018, there was a huge effort by NATO member states funding media outlets to fabricate evidence to make a case and a smear campaign against employees of the OPCW inspectors who actually questioned this hoax uh, that, that was uh, being run by Western media, Western NATO member states about a chemical attack in Duma. It is the most ridiculous story. The Skripals, he invoked Salisbury. Yes. So what? So where so, are the Skripals? So Russia deployed Novichok chemical weapons on NATO territory. Is that what Jan Stoltenberg said? That's what he's saying. Really? So why didn't NATO uh, trigger Article Five then? Because not only is it a violation of Article Five, an attack on one is attack on all, but it's chemical weapons, and that's an even bigger red line, right? Why didn't NATO uh, attack Russia after that if it was so bad? The Skripal narrative is also ridiculous. Where are the Skripals? Where is we, the, we want to know, where are they? They just disappeared in thin air because of why? We don't know, the daughter and the father, uh, and apparently they got hit with the most deadly chemical weapon in the history of the world, 10 times more deadly than VX nerve gas, and it didn't kill them. And we're supposed to say, okay, yep, 
But it did, it, did call, it did kill Don Sturgis, according to the official narrative. And of course, we're just about to enter uh, a whole inquiry into, into her death. So there's going to be a new inquiry in the next week or so. It's going to begin. Uh, and we're going to get headlines on, on, to bring the Skripal narrative right back into the headlines again so that we all know that Russia carried out this terrible attack. Any, any coincidence on the timing of this? Total. Yeah. Yes, I thought, I thought so. Uh, but then following the uh, NATO meeting was a G7 meeting. So uh, they also had a, a holiday snap. Here it is. Uh, but it didn't seem to go so well for uh, poor old Boris. So let's just have a look at, uh, at what happened here. Uh, Boris looking particularly pathetic, uh, actually. He's lost. And uh, yes, he is lost. Nobody really wants to speak to him. It's a shame. He's, he's got the shirt out, hanging out the belly, the usual look. Yes, disheveled hair, and nobody wants to speak to him. It, uh, it's I feel very sorry for him. Uh, but anyway, this is what he had to say. Uh, he had to say after this, uh, the message that Putin can take from today's extraordinary meeting of NATO and the G7 is this: Ukraine is not alone. It looks pretty alone to me, aside from well, it, the pumping in more and more weapons to make sure that the the, the, the war continues. Uh, but he went on to say, uh, we stand with the people of Kiev of, of Maripol. That is their. Uh, that is their spelling mistake, by the way. That that is not my spelling mistake. They Mario, don't know how Mario to spell. How to sp they don't know how to spell Mariupol, uh, of uh, Lviv and Donetsk. So, Stand and he includes Donetsk in this. It, it's just <laughs> disgraceful, Patrick. So what's he talking about? So he stands with the Russians in Donetsk who are being attacked. He hasn't stood with them since 2014. He is the, not standing with them now. He's they're just, getting attacked with British arms. The people in Donetsk. Did you know that? Yes. They're getting hit with British weapons that we're trafficking into Ukraine. I mean, does Boris know what he's talking about? Has he studied this conflict? Does he actually know what's going on? Does he know who the belligerents are? Uh, I suspect not. Did he know where the UK weapons are hitting, which civilians are being killed or soldiers are being killed by UK weapons? Do these people know anything? Mm. I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to tell. It, it I is. know they're smart. I know they know a lot. I know they can do a lot of amazing stuff, uh, and they have their various talents. But when I hear these people talk about this conflict, it's so dumbed down, mm. the discourse. They don't want to go into any nuance. They don't want to actually drill down into any meta-analysis. It's Putin bad, and, you know, stand with Ukraine. That's yeah. it. That's yeah. all that's allowed with this. Yes. Now, look, uh, before we come back onto Ukraine again, just a quick aside, because obviously uh, prior to the uh, NATO meeting, uh, Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau from Canada, was visiting the EU because he was in Brussels anyway, uh, and it didn't go entirely well for him. So this is uh, Christine Anderson uh, from uh, Alternative for Deutschland. Uh, yesterday, Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, visited the EU Parliament to give a speech, I took the opportunity to give an appropriate welcome here, short, concise, uh, and right hitting the bullseye. So uh, first of all, let's just uh, have a look at uh, Trudeau there with his fixed grin, because he clearly wasn't uh, terribly welcome amongst many anyway. Um, this and was an important photo op for Justin, for his album. Yes. This was a really important photo for his, his personal album yes. that he keeps above the mantle place in his Canadian cabin. Yeah, indeed. So so let's just have a quick look at uh, the speech that uh, she gave, Christine Anderson gave to Trudeau or for Trudeau. I will now give the floor to Miss Christine Anderson for her point. Thank you. Based on Article 195. 
out that it would have been more appropriate for Mr. Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, to address this House according to Article 144, an article which was specifically designed to debate violations of human rights, democracy and the rule of law, which is clearly the case with Mr. Trudeau. Then again, a Prime Minister who openly admires the Chinese basic dictatorship who tramples on fundamental rights by persecuting and criminalizing his own citizens as terrorists just because they dared to stand up to his perverted concept of democracy should not be allowed to speak in this House at all. Mr. Trudeau, you are a disgrace for any democracy. Please spare us your presence. Thank you. And she was not the only one to express these types of views. There were other uh, speeches given by other members of the European Parliament. That woman should be commissioner of the EU, not Ursula von der Leyen. At least we feel like we had a safe pair of hands yes. at the top of the organization. Wow. So, it, yeah. And so he got a, an earful from a couple of other yes. MEPs, too. That was actually the tame one that she gave. Uh, he, he was handled a bit rougher. Uh, by some of the other what, being accused of uh, facilitating Nazis and so on that sort of thing yeah. yeah so I mean he really got hammered so that that photo op didn't go too well for for Justin so we feel so bad for him well look let's come back on to uh, Ukraine issues and on Wednesday we showed you a couple of clips uh, of previews of uh, a bit of a, a gag played on uh, the wonderful Ben Wallace uh, our Secretary of State for Defense and since that time the full uh, video has come out. And there's some very, very interesting points in it, Patrick. There is. This is worth picking apart because uh, this is very, very revealing. Now, what, let's give some context before we start. This was what denied uh, by a couple of ministers saying, oh, they tried to prank us and it was no big deal. Well, what Ben Wallace said was that they, they tried to prank pretty Well, pretty Patel, first of all, said they tried to prank me and I didn't get caught out with it. Ben Wallace said, well, they tried to prank me, but very quickly I realized it was a prank and I put the phone down. That is what he said in his in his tweet. So was his, was Ben Wallace, defense secretary's call directed from Pretty Patel's office. Well, this, was this it a is, referral or the, were they two separate calls? This is the argument. Nobody actually knows what went on. There's a lot of he, he did, they did, and um, I'm not, you know, we're not taking responsibility for it. Well, we're going to show you some, some clips. Uh, obviously, this is edited, but you'll be able to see from the white flashes. Yeah. Those are our edits. Uh, every other cut is from, from Vol Volvin and Lexus. These are two notorious, we'll put them up on screen, two notorious Russian pranksters. They have an incredible portfolio of crank calls. Okay, so Volvin and Lexus, two Russian pranksters. They managed to get everybody from Nikki Haley to Alec Baldwin, I don't know, just about every world leader. Uh, these guys are incredible. I'm surprised how our politicians still fall for this after they've been, these guys have been active for years. Okay, um, so here's the first part of this uh, this clip here. So this is the uh, the intro. Right. And we'll uh, we'll have a we'll have a, a chat afterwards uh, about what we've just seen. Let's play this. Good afternoon, this is Defence Secretary's office. Can I just check who you've got on the line please? Yes, sure. We will just we are on the line. Do you hear me? Thank you. Yeah, I can hear you loud uh, and clear. If yeah. you just bear with us while the defence secretary joins, yes. thank you. Yeah, we we will be we will switch on our camera when we will be when we will see. Understood. No problem. Thank mm -hmm. you. Hello. 
Hello. How are you there? I'm fine. I'm in Poland. Oh, okay. Yes, I know. Uh, so, dear secretary, um, it's my pleasure. I've visited you five times uh, over the last five years, so um, I'm uh, determined to keep more and more supplies coming to you. Well, uh, I can't say where I've been, but I've just been to look at more of our anti-air capacity to give you and making sure that we are getting it into the country as quickly as possible. So you know that Russia demands to uh, to leave ideas of uh, NATO uh, joining. Yeah. So what's, what do you think? Because I don't think Russia should be yeah. able to demand anything other than going home. Yeah, of course. I know that. Uh, I'm, um, two things. I've just been looking at our new anti-air missile that we're sending you, which is better than Stinger. It'll work at night. It's a very, very fast missile, and it will help close the skies to Russian aircraft. Uh, yes. I think... So, uh, obviously, the bit that you uh, edited out of that was the bit we showed on Wednesday, where he admitted that, that we had sent 4,000 uh, uh, of these anti-tank missiles already. The British government has uh, now had to put that into formal press releases uh, to acknowledge that, and they're saying 4,000 anti-tank uh, missiles and another 2,000 of, of other types of missile. So, um, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, the, the, what he said there about, he, he, so this is, is the defense secretary, talk, he thinks he's talking to the prime minister of Ukraine, but yeah. he's not, he's talking to Volvo and Lexus, but he thinks he's talking to the Ukrainian head of the RADA. And he's saying that he doesn't believe Russia should be able to demand anything mm. in negotiation. So is that the official British position, which is, don't negotiate at all with the Russians? Is this the official? Because this is a British minister, right? Well, whether it's the official or not, that seems to be the position that he's, we're in. He's articulating that to what yeah. he thinks is the prime minister of Ukraine. So it, I thought that was the job. Maybe my diplomacy school <laughs> chops are a little bit rusty, Mike, but I thought that was the job of the foreign secretary. Am I wrong? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. Not anymore. It's what impossible we, to say anymore. What do we know? It's yeah. just a couple of hacks, right? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, and the other bit was he's giving away uh, the type of uh, stinger yeah. with night capabilities uh, that and is being moved now and uh, presumably through Poland, okay? So, I mean, if you have intel on the ground, and Russia does have intel on the ground, yes. they'll know exactly, and now they know what to look for. And uh, in terms of uh, electronic jamming, electronic warfare, we know from reports that Russia is very advanced in this area. So now they already have maybe somewhat of a head start. Maybe they already knew this before. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. It's public now. I just think it's just incredible that the defense secretary would be, <laughs> the A, they got through on the call. B, he would go on video to validate it. And C, he would be uh, giving so much uh, uh, information out, but this is just the beginning. Let's listen to the next part. Mr. Prime Minister, could I ask you a question, if I may? Um, yes. Uh, your, your constitution currently has the application or the NATO uh, obligation in it. Uh, I understand if, if President Zelensky, uh, and I heard what he said about neutrality and, or, or not joining NATO. Do you think the Ukrainian people would support that?
So he's stirring. He's stirring as much as he possibly can. So there he's agitating, basically saying that President Zelensky backed down on NATO membership and saying, oh, we're thinking of going neutral now. Ben Wallace is sticking it into the prime minister, agitating, stirring, as you said, right. stirring the pot, saying, do you think the Ukrainian people will accept what Zelensky is saying? That's what he's inferring there very directly. Uh, and Again, this is the defense secretary, yes, not uh, the foreign secretary. And so we, you know, we're seeing press releases from the UK government that Boris has been on the phone with Zelensky almost on a daily basis at the moment. And you've got to assume that, that he's giving the same, the same uh, position. So are they, so if, I assume they're all on message, right? And if they're not, then Ben Wallace is what? He's a maverick mm. uh, making freestyle uh, phone calls with the uh, Prime Minister of, of the right. It doesn't matter if it's a prankster or not. He thought he was talking to the Prime Minister right. of Ukraine. This is unbelievable. So these people are tasked with managing, keeping us out of World War III. How much confidence do we have right now uh, in these people? I don't know. It's not very high at the moment. Less than zero in my opinion, but <laughs> not, anyway. It's not very high at the minute. Uh, let's listen to the next, uh, the next clip. So look, um we, we are, as you know, we are not going to directly attack Russian ships or Russian airplanes. That is just, that, that's not, not, not at this stage will, will we be doing this. Uh, and as you know, that is, you know, that's a difficult thing for me to say. Uh, we will help you with a whole range of weapons that can deal with those, including potentially in the Black Sea. Uh, and if you know, remember last year we took HMS Defender past Crimea and, and um, so look, we, we, I am considering more and more weapon systems to help in it. Uh, we, will, we will go into the Black Sea. I think we're due to go soon in the Black Sea. Uh, how close we go to uh, Ukrainian waters uh, where the Russians currently have a blockade, I think we will be open to discussions about looking at that. Uh, I mean, maybe on next stage we can uh, fight a together. Yeah. Oh, look, on, on the next stage, uh, I hope we would always be keen to be with you in Ukraine. Britain will look at all options to help you, including being Thank in you. Ukraine. Right. I, I, yes. I have troops in Poland. I have troops in Estonia. I have troops uh, in Lithuania. Uh, I am happy to be with you in Ukraine in Obviously, subject, uh, you know, if you remember, we were having, we had 100 troops in orbital training team. We've had that since 2015, but we can look at all sorts of options. So how can he possibly still be in post, Patrick? He has just divulged what must be secret information at this stage to some, okay, he thought he was speaking to the Prime Minister of Ukraine, but he's he's talking about ships moving into the uh, Black Sea. He said, we're going into the Black Sea very soon. Is that public knowledge? That's well, he's telegraphed that, posi that position. That's a military maneuver. This is crazy. Uh, and he's saying, at this stage, uh, we can't uh, directly uh, confront Russia or attack Russian forces at this stage. But when we get to the next stage, did you hear that? Yes. When we get, what is the next stage? Is the next stage all out war? Uh, is the public not being told something here? That's the defense secretary. He obviously has an idea that there is a next stage. Is a next, and they're planning, they're planning for a next stage. They're planning for a next stage. And then he says, I have troops in Lithuania. I have troops in Poland. I have troops in 
he started, is what, what is this, I have troops? We have troops, if, if he's representing the British government, right? right. It's, this is really bizarre. This is incredibly revealing as well of the type of person and the character that, that we're, we're hearing here. We're seeing them kind of unguarded a little bit. Yeah. And it, again, it doesn't matter if it's a prank call or a real call. That's your real defense minister. Yeah. That part is real, and it seems like his intentions were he was th he believed he was talking to Ukrainian PM. Right. Just because they they can't vet their calls properly, I mean that's not the fault of the pranksters. Uh, they're just doing what they've been doing for the last eight years or whatever. However, Volvo and Alexin been doing these uh, epic pranks. So let's just do a quick review here. Uh, and we do have another bit of the clip that, that segues on to the next thing, but uh, we thought we'd take a look at this. There's Vlad. He's looking on and with great amusement and all this, I'm sure. There's Ben Wallace there. Doesn't like Putin, apparently. We're going to call this Ben's big intel dump, okay? So this is what Vlad and the world have learned after this wonderful phone call. Number one, over 4,000 uh, laws. these are anti-tank shoulder-mounted missiles, delivered into the war zone. And again, as you said, Mike, uh, this forced the government to issue an official press release. That there was pretty much a, uh, a it should be over at that point. It should be, yes. It should be over. No, but uh, here we go. So t two smuggling routes uh, he disclosed. One was closed for uh, by the Ukrainian general staff. So he said there's two smuggling routes. He said this on the call, two smuggling routes into uh, Ukraine. And one of them is enclosed by general staff. So the Russians have intelligence embedded in Ukrainian agencies. So they know now to go to general staff, and that's how they'll find out right. where the weapons will be smuggled. Common sense. Here, new Stinger's delivery with night capability, again, as we mentioned. Uh, that's not supposed to be public knowledge. New, a new class of weapons coming in. So Russia has the jump on that. And here we go. UK will be sharing intelligence with Kiev. And uh, I will say Nazi battalions as well, because they're also integrated into the Ukrainian armed forces. Yeah. So just to remind people, we're sharing our intelligence with Nazis in Ukraine. I'm sorry, but that's the fact. That's, fact. that's the fact. So the UK is moving naval assets into the Black Sea. Thank you for that disclosure. That's wonderful. And the UK is planning naval provocations in the Black Sea, as Ben Wallace articulated in this phone call. You can listen to the full recording. It is somewhat edited as well. Some of these points will be in the next clip, by the way. Uh, and here we go. The UK is planning next stage of NATO involvement to include direct fighting against Russia. So what do we conclude from all of this here? Just this list, Mike. You know, what's your total... Uh, um, What's your total sort of takeaway from all of that? Well, in, in, in Ben Wallace's mind, we are already at war with Russia. That's, that's right. That's right. And this is what we're saying. Our conclusion, ministers have committed the UK and the electorate to a war with Russia. If you're doing all of these things above, look closely at those bullet points. Look closely. Are you not at war? We're in an information war. We've declared economic war via sanctions, and now we're doing covert military operations and planning provocations and planning to attack uh, and, and fight Russia directly within a NATO context in the, what, what Ben Wallace calls the next stage. Yeah. Okay. I think people really need to take pause and realize what's going on here. Okay. This is extremely, extremely dangerous uh, path that these ministers are taking the public down. 
that are taking the world down. Yes. In this sense, this is really serious. So where are all these weapons ending up, Mike? I just wanted to uh, highlight this here. That's a nice uh, Land Rover Defender. That's military grade. Yeah, that's part of the military aid. That's for sale, 54,000 euros already on the market. And you know, you won't find the stingers on any of these websites, but those are being sold for cash. Uh, you better believe it. So we are sending aid to Ukraine, military aid, lethal military aid to Ukraine, and it's going straight onto Ukrainian eBay? Well, no, this is the non-lethal variety here. So that's a nice uh, rover. I mean, th that's a good thing to have if you've got the cash. Yes. I'd love to have one of those. I think that's a really cool Land Rover. But anyway, that's on the European black market there. I think that's in, uh, is that Poland? I'm not sure. It's just one of the one of those countries there. Yeah. So that's interesting. You're going to see more of this, by the way, and you're going to see these shoulder-mounted missiles ending up in the hands of ISIS. Mm -hmm. That's a guarantee. That's a guarantee. So these weapons will, as, as with all of these theaters, these weapons from the West that they're trafficking on the underground into a war zone will end up into the hands of terrorists and may very well likely be used to kill Western civilians at some point. So another great victory there. Here's part four. Watch this. This is absolutely unbelievable, and we'll comment on it afterwards. Here it is. And why I also would like to request provide uh, never NLAW anti-tank weapons uh, since those delivered earlier um, often failed, so that was uh, problems for our country. Our, ours have, I don't think ours have failed. I've got the details of ours. We've given you over 4,000. We've got more coming. Yeah, right. We're, ru we're running out of our own. But I, I speak to uh, Minister Reznikov or text him every day. Yeah. So, we, uh, we have a problem in bureaucracy at the moment, which is we had two routes into the country. Uh, and we, the, the Ukrainian general staff chose to push everything through one route. That has slowed down supplies uh, into a part of your army that needs them. What we don't want to do is see you bullied into making decisions like recognizing Crimea as Russia. So, so I, th I think you know we, we deeply feel that you should be free away from this Russian Nazi and bully. We would like to continue the nuclear program in order to protect ourselves from Russia. It's uh, a difficult question, but we think to start it whether you want to explore new weapons, etc., that is all a matter for you to decide and for the West to, to, in a sense, stand by you. And on things like the security guarantees, we would be very happy to look at that with you uh, in whatever way we can. I understand the need for it. Um, and we would like to be close to you in these negotiations for, for really two reasons. So we can provide our intelligence to you as much as possible to let you know what we think the Russians are thinking uh, and to uh, just allow you all to be able to, to, to explore with us what you think is feasible. Right. Um, dear Secretary, in the proposals for a peace treaty, Russia wants us to reduce the army as well as the number of weapons. In this case, can we count on... Uh, secret supplies of weapons for us, for example, to store it in Poland? So, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, I understand what you're asking. 
or maybe you could filter uh, some volunteers that are coming to our country to fight against Russians. You know many volunteers. And there are some uh, more frequent cases where the, when the British uh, discredit our country in the eyes of the world. For example, Jake Priday from Cardiff recently gave an interview that we, are we have terrible conditions and we are deceiving everyone and he managed to convince 20 more volunteers to refuse the contracts. This information undermines the moral of Ukraines. Yeah, look, I, I'm not responsible for idiots that come and give interviews on media, I'm afraid. I can try and stop them, but, um, you know, if people, people you know, look, look, there are also no doubt people who have come to help you, uh, uh, who are perfectly happy to, to stand and fight alongside you. So, look, I, if some idiot from Cardiff decides to give an interview, he's probably an idiot. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it's quite hard for me to, in our free press, I can't control those people, but um, we, we're trying to discourage people coming who what we would call our water mitties, you know, people who are thrill seekers uh, who haven't really been in the army, probably failures rather than the army, uh, but we'll see what we can do. I can say Slava Ukraini. Slava Ukraini, and to say to our heroes, Vavan and Lexus, it's our Ukrainian heroes, they bombed airplanes from a uh, Russian site. Vavan and Lexus. Okay. Slava. Uh, Slava Ukraini, Mr. Prime Minister. Slava, okay. Vavan and Lexus. Slava, Vavan okay. and Lexus. I, okay. I, I, hang on. I just, I, Slava Ukraini, thank you for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. And, Bye. Yes. Wow. I mean, uh, he, he, he said he understood very quickly that it was a fake call and that he put the call down. He did not put that call down. There was somebody off camera demonstrating to him that he needed to end the call. At the end, when they said Slava, Volvin, and Lexus, yes. then the, his, uh, Ben Wallace's assistant knew who Volvin Lexus was. And then he said, well, it was like this, end the call, end yeah. the call. By that time, it was too late there. I mean, what did you take away from that just initially? Uh, what, what can I say? Uh, <laughs> clearly, first of all, he absolutely supports anybody, any mercenary who has gone to Ukraine, that is absolutely clear, despite what he has said in public. Because if you remember, Liz Truss made the statement in public, yes, we will support mercenaries going to Ukraine. Then they sort of backtracked on that in terms of the official narrative. But he clearly absolutely supports uh, proper mercenaries. And he's talking about the people from Cardiff being idiots mm. uh, and talking about trying to persuade the Walter Mitty characters not to go. He wants to see properly trained uh, experienced British military uh, veterans in the Ukraine. Sure? That's that's absolutely clear from what he said there. Oh, he'd have been fine with Jack Pridey from Cardiff as long as he didn't complain to the media. Yes. Ben Walsh would have said how brave it was for him to fight alongside the Ukrainians. But he gave away the, the British position was we're going to basically, uh, we're going to, we're going to intervene on the Crimean issue. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to budge on Crimea. So they're, they're, they're prodding that. So that, that will be a, a non-negotiable point uh, from the West who'll be micromanaging, who are micromanaging negotiations with, uh, with the, uh, what's left of the Ukrainian government, who's running the country actually, uh, but the U.S. State Department uh, at this point. So anyway, he's talking about these, these uh, incredible, incredible uh, uh, disclosures. Yes. Incredible disclosures. So he's talking about Jake Pridey uh, from Cardiff. Let's take a look at Jake. We'll put him up on screen here. There he is. 
uh, fighters with Ukraine's foreign legion, they're calling it, are being asked to sign indefinite contracts. Some have refused. So this is the guy that Ben Wallace said was an idiot uh, from Cardiff. He said he had no military experience. And he's probably a Walter Mitty character, now possibly ideologically naive, maybe a victim of Western propaganda with regards to Zelensky, the, uh, the comedian stroke hero. But uh, here's the actual uh, scoop on Mr. Pridey, a 25-year-old British teacher from Cardiff and Wales, responded to the call by Zelensky. Pridey had spent six years in the British Army doing tours of duty with the Royal Engineers in Estonia, Kenya, and most recently Iraqi Kurdistan, where he helped train local militias in 2017. So this doesn't sound like a Walter Mitty character, does it? He sounds like someone with a lot of experience. Uh, he's not a failure, uh, as Ben Wallace had called him. Uh, here. And again, Ben Wallace's uh, invectives against this chap, who he probably doesn't even know or know of, was really because he spoke out in the press right. negatively. So Ben was upset that it might cause less people to go and join the international brigades. That's pretty right. clear, isn't it? Yes. That's pretty obvious. Yeah. So there's Jake Pridey and the volunteers. Here's the thing. Volunteers lined up and were told that it was time to sign a contract, a stipulated pay, that's uh, $230 local currency there. Uh, and they would have to remain in the Ukrainian Foreign Legion for the duration of the war. That's an indefinite wow. contract. So that means they can't leave. The contract put them under the same obligation as all Ukrainian men under martial law declared by Zelensky on February 24th. No man aged between 18 and 60 is allowed to leave the country. If you've got any commitments at home, you're going to lose them, said Pridey. He's talking about mortgage repayments. He's talking about jobs. He's talking about any of that. So you, you're, you're either going home in, or you, if you're not even going home in a box, okay? Because it, uh, the reports that we have seen that they're not uh, really collecting all the debt yeah. uh, from the front line. So, you know, you're really up to fate if you cross the border and go into Ukraine. But um, the attacks on these people who are speaking out are unbelievable. We, we even showed one yes, last, last week. week yeah. That was an American uh, legionnaire, legionnaire who spoke out. So it's, it really seems like the government do have a position. They want as many people to flood into the country and join these international brigades. I mean, where is the legality in this? Where does this stand on the, uh, the political continuum in terms of uh, international law, ethics? What, it's, it's a free-for-all. It is a free-for-all. And let's just remind ourselves, uh, this is, I think, from a week or two ago. This is the Telegraph. Uh, British volunteer fighters may have triggered deadly strike on Ukrainian base after their phones were detected. Uh, so at least 35 people were killed, uh, potentially including three British ex-Special Forces troops when 30 Russian cruise missiles pulverized the facility near the Polish border on the 13th of March. Uh, now the Telegraph has learned that around 12 to 14 phone numbers, starting with plus 44, were visible to surveillance equipment in the area in the hours before the missile strike. Security sources said mercenaries paid by the Wagner Group, a secretive military company with links to the Kremlin, were suspected of operating on the ground at the time. So this was the Wagner Group uh, attacking uh, good British servicemen. Uh, and uh, the source said as soon as Moscow got any whiff of a possible British presence on the base, uh, they would have immediately ordered a strike, an unnamed source, of course. Uh, the attack on the base, one of Putin's furthest for, uh, forays at West in three-week-old war, uh, lays bare the risk facing British recruits if they travel to the war zone, particularly if they fail to exercise caution with their electronic devices. 
uh, Britain has not deployed any troops to Ukraine to avoid being drawn into direct conflict with uh, Russia. But I think Ben Wallace has just given the game away. We are absolutely supporting uh, those uh, men going there. Uh, but scores of former military personnel have traveled. Uh, a small number of serving soldiers are, non, are, are known to have gone absent without leave, tried to enter the battlefield. I don't believe that for one second. I think they have been uh, given tacit approval, as I say. And Ben Wallace warned any troops who leave to fight in Ukraine will face prosecution on, your, on the return. I don't believe that either. And actually, I'm highly skeptical about the, the whole story, Patrick, because I, I do find it incredible. Maybe it's true. I don't know. But I, but I find it incredible that anybody is walking around uh, Ukraine in a fighting in a war zone uh, if they're on the front lines with a UK mobile phone. Uh, as you know, w when we know the levels of electronic surveillance that there are and electronic countermeasures that there are, uh, it's going to be obvious that you're you're merely transmitting your position. Uh, but not everybody's going to be thinking like that. Honestly, it's a free for all. Uh, and there's a little bit of um, the fact that they would go there, Mike, means that they might not be playing with a full deck, okay, to, to begin with. And so, again, uh, <laughs> you know, good luck. Good luck if, if that's what you want to do, but uh, understand that there are huge risks involved. This isn't like uh, hanging around in uh, Syrian Kurdistan uh, with the, uh, the, the freedom fighters there uh, where you don't actually have uh, a, a, military, a full on military that's targeting you. Uh, all the time. So this is actually a real war zone. Uh, and so even guys who do tours in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, post-invasion tours, I'm talking about in recent years, yes. they're not going to see a lot of live fire or see anything like this at all. So a lot of them, uh, I believe, have been kind of, you know, lured into this uh, situation. By the way, the fourth base has been uh, hit yesterday. Uh, and the Russian MOD released uh, footage of that. We didn't have time to, uh, to, to show you that. So that's four bases. In total, we're talking, there's easily over a thousand uh, deaths mm. uh, that were reported from all of these mercenary bases that got hit. And a lot of these are foreigners. A lot of these are Americans. Uh, they could be British. They could be European. They could be Canadian. They could be from Brazil. There's quite a few, there's a kind of a Brazilian Nazi movement that has been sort of uh, lured into this situation as well. I mean, this is just a total Okay, this is a total mess. Well, let's move on to another part of the war now because the British government pushed this out uh, yesterday, exposed Russian spy agency behind cyber incidents. And they said that the UK, together with the US and other allies, has yesterday uh, exposed historic malign cyber activity of Russia's Federal, Federal Security Service, FSB, the, success, the successor agency to the KGB. One month on since Putin's unprovoked and illegal war in Ukraine started, the global scope of the FSB Center 16 cyber campaign has been revealed. The National Cybersecurity Center assesses it as almost certain that the FSB Center 16 are also known by their hacker group pseudonyms of Energetic Bear, Berserk Bear, and Crouching Yeti, uh, and, cond <laughs> and conducted a malign program of cyber activity. Uh, targeting critical IT systems and national infrastructure in Europe, the Americas, and Asia. Uh, they've today been indicted by, that's yesterday, by the FBI for targeting uh, the systems controlling the Wolf Creek nuclear power plants in Kansas, U.S., in 2017, but failed to have any negative impact. Separately, uh, Liz Truss has used the U.K.'s cyber sanctions regime to designate a Russian defense ministry, ministry subsidiary, the Central Scientific Research Institute of Chemi Chemistry and Mechanics, uh, for an incident involving safety uh, override controls in a Saudi petrochemicals plant in 2017. Uh, 
Okay, so let's have a look and see what Liz Truss had to say. Russia's targeting of critical national infrastructure is calculated and dangerous. It shows Putin is prepared to risk lives to sow division and confusion amongst allies. And so my question, Patrick, is, uh, is Britain in any position to criticize Russia on this issue? And once again, we absolutely are not. Let's just remind you of the integrated operating concept. This was uh, the new uh, defense uh, way of working uh, released a couple of years ago. The central idea of the integrated operating concept is, is offensive rather than defensive. Uh, and if you remember, uh, here is Nick Carter, who was the chief of the uh, defense staff at the time, saying, you know, Russia, uh, I've, I've highlighted this hell because it's an older graphic, but nonetheless, Russia first on the list. Uh, our own media has a vitally important role to play in setting up a well-informed public debate. But what he may define as a well-informed public debate may not be, in fact, well-informed. Uh, political warfare is war by other, uh, other means. So we are in a political war, are we not? Uh, this requires a fusion approach. And NATO is turning its mind effectively to the challenges of the future, including China, space, cyber, hybrid warfare, subversion, disinformation, and new technologies. We are doing this in an offensive manner, right? He went on to say this. Uh, our new UK Strategic Command, which formally stands up next week, I think this is 2018 when he was doing this, uh, is the successor to Joint Forces Command, is charged with driving the essential integration across a modernized force to achieve multi-domain effect. It will develop and generate capabilities we need to operate successfully in the sub-threshold context, or gray zone as some call it, including space, cyber, special operations, and information operations. And this is, this is where the West is attempting to sit at the moment. Okay, they're put, pushing kinetic weapons into Ukraine, but as far as the, the UK is concerned, uh, it's trying to stay in this sub-threshold context. What he means by that is below the level of a proper full-on kinetic war directly between us and, and the Russians. But designed to be disruptive. But designed to be disruptive. So let's bring Ben Wallace on screen. I'm a soldier, he said. Uh, he said this yesterday, I was always taught the best part of defense is offense, right? So my point here is it's offensive. So uh, let's just remember that the UK at the end of last year or the middle of last year set up the National Cyber Force. The National Cyber Force transforms the country's cyber capabilities to protect the UK. This is about offensive cyber activities, okay? And uh, this is what they had to say. The integrated review uh, recognizes that cyberspace is becoming increasingly important in all areas of society, the economy and government, including defense, law enforcement and foreign policy. This means the UK will use cyber operations as part of its diplomatic, economic and military activities. Diplomatic. And just remember what Ben said. Uh, I'm a soldier. I was always taught that the best part of defense is offense. Does it change his title to offense secretary then? Well, it needs to be secretary of war from now on. This, yeah. he's not, it's not about defense anymore. Um, so the, Britain is absolutely using cyber, uh, offensive cyber war uh, on other countries at the moment, including Russia, probably including China. So, so we're in it, we've declared an information war. We've declared a cyber war. Uh, we're, we're doing a covert war, right? And economic warfare as well. Yes. And so this brings us to this this part here. Yeah. So uh, just very quickly mention this as well. 65 new Russian banks, oligarchs, defense companies, and individuals have been sanctioned. This is the latest. Uh, what is Liz Trust saying? These oligarchs, businesses, and, uh, and hard thugs are complicit in the murder of innocent civilians, uh, and it's right that they pay the price. 
uh, all those sanctioned today will have their assets in the UK frozen, which means no UK citizen or company can do business with them and individuals subject to travel bans are also prohibited from traveling to or from the UK. So if you're a Russian and you happen to be on the sanctions list and you're in the UK, you may not leave. That's what she just said, you can't leave. So what are you, what are you supposed to do? You're, you're economically sanctioned, so you can't earn a living in the UK, but you're not allowed to leave the UK. Well, I think at that point, they, if they wanted, they could go to the uh, Russian embassy and give themselves up uh, unless they found another embassy that would offer them asylum. Okay. Uh, today's sanctions will bring the total global asset value uh, of the banks. The UK has sanctioned since the invasion to £500 billion and the net worth of the oligarchs and family members in excess of £150 billion. Uh, that's a duplicate. So so that's uh, that's basically where we are with that. It's, it's, I'm just going to say, you know, this... This uh, obsession with the oligarchs that our politicians have, the obsession with sanctions that oligarchs, to think that Putin is, uh, is insulated by this ring of oligarchs and that he, uh, everything that he does uh, is at the whim of all these oligarchs. This is a complete uh, misconception of the uh, state of Russia uh, in 2022. And again, it, it, it begs the question, where, where are ministers getting their... Uh, their geopolitical analysis from where are yes. they getting their their ideas from because it's not going to work it didn't work in 2014 it's not going to work in 2022 unless something happened between all the last round, rounds of sanctions uh did they, did they have a total reconfiguration of russian society in the last uh, eight years i don't think, I don't so. think so so what is all this it's just i don't know magical thinking it's the best way to describe it. Um, but of course, in the meantime, uh, you know, UK accuses Russia of running disinformation campaigns and attempting to influence uh, Western thinking, which is why RT has been banned and Sputnik's been banned and every uh, option to hear what the Russians are saying has been banned. So let's bring Nadine Dorries on screen because she, of course, is Secretary of State for the, uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, and the government is providing the BBC with an additional £4.1 million in emergency funding to help the World Service broadcast directly into Ukraine and Russia, because we don't do disinformation, of course, uh, or uh, propaganda. Uh, in scenes reminiscent of 80 years ago, the BBC will ensure that audiences in the region can continue to access independent news reporting in the face of systemic propaganda from a dictator waging war on European soil. This is disgraceful. So again, we cite the Second World War and the role the BBC pay played in the Second World War. And we say that that is that this is something that we should respect at this point and with what they're doing with Russia and Ukraine. And the, the fetishization of the Second World War just continues unabashed, which is amazing. And they do sort of omit the important point was, guess who defeated the Nazis in World War II? Well, it was, of course, the Red Army uh, that did that. They took the majority of casualties. They took the majority of the loss of life. They paid the ultimate price. And then the Westerners now lecturing and calling them and comparing them to, to Nazis. It's really beyond the pale, but this is just what diplomacy is these days, I think. Uh, yes, now, just very briefly, Patrick, uh, Article 5, of course, is right at the forefront of, of the narrative from politicians, from the media, from NATO, as we saw yesterday. Um, now, this, is, this little piece of video is a couple of weeks old now, um, but uh, it's worth just reminding ourselves what the attitude of government ministers is with respect to Article 5. Just listen to this first. This is from LBC. It, I can get you any number between six 
and 20, I refer to the number of miles from the Polish border the latest bombing from Putin took yeah. place. This obviously, I don't need to remind you, but to remind my listeners, an attack on one member of NATO is an attack on all members of NATO. Yeah. Secretary of State, how does this escalate the situation in your view? Well, we've been very clear uh, from the start with our NATO allies that if there is any kind of attack on NATO territory, then it will be war with NATO and there will be a, a severe response. Uh, we don't ever set out in advance how exactly we would respond. Uh, of course, we'd work together with our allies. But let's be very clear, Nick, that if there's if a single Russian toe cap steps into NATO territory, there will be war with NATO. I know he, he, he knows a lot about investment banking, uh, but wh where's the health secretary allowed to weigh in on uh, national security? Uh, that part I didn't get. Yeah, it, it did amuse me slightly that when he said we don't we don't divulge our plans. I think I think Ben Wallace did a fairly good job of yeah of doing that. So, so this is this Article Five trope that you keep hearing: an attack on one is an attack on all. Everybody keeps repeating. They've all got this script. Okay, so what does this mean? This is not what NATO was designed to be. It wasn't designed to be a tripwire uh, for World War III. It was designed to prevent war. But what we're seeing now is the NATO is getting more aggressive in its expansion and now in its rhetoric. And as Jan Stoltenberg showed uh, in those previous clips that we showed, uh, they're expanding their uh, purview. They're into economics now. They're in charge of politics. They're in charge of democracy. Uh, NATO is just basically wanting to take over their their sovereign territory. We're told. But the bit that grabs me with this, Patrick, is it's Article Five, Article Five, Article Five, uh, as if it uh, there's no other context around it. It's taken out as being one article. Article Four doesn't seem to exist. Article One, Two, and Three. I mean, there's other articles in the treaty, and therefore you've got to see the full context of the treaty to understand Article Five. But they take it out and use it as like a battering ram. Yeah, so he's saying if, if some shrapnel lands in Poland, then we're going to World War III. I mean, this is the, the, the insanity of where these people are taking us. Uh, pretty scary. Yeah, okay. Well, look, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there. Also, do share our material as you find it. Uh, uh, or if you'd like to support us via the shop, that would be very much appreciated as well. That's at shop.ukcolumn.org. Org. Now, I just very briefly uh, want to uh, run through uh, some comments that Sergei Lavrov and uh, Dmitry Medvedev have made in the last uh, couple of days. So let's start off with, uh, with uh, Lavrov, because he's citing uh, big new Brzezinski here. Patrick, the West didn't want equal cooperation, and as we can now see, has kept true to the will and testament of, big, sorry, of Brzezinski, uh, who said that uh, Ukraine should not be allowed to side with Russia. Uh, with Ukraine, Russia is a great power. While without Ukraine, it's a regional player. That's what they believe he, he sees as he sees it. Uh, we understand this is a mere uh, exaggeration, uh, but it nonetheless, nevertheless fits the philosophy and the mentality of Western leaders. No effort was spared to turn Ukraine into the instrument, uh, an instrument to uh, contain Russia. Uh, I wouldn't call it a game in the sense implied by Brzezinski uh, in terms of the great game and the grand chessboard. Uh, we proceed from the premise that our friends are people, states and political parties, which are equals, unlike Western organizations where there's little democracy. Uh, what we want is an equitable word, world free from war, aggressive projects or attempts to pitch one country against another. Equitable is also the way we see Russia's place in the world. 
uh, what we want is to discuss how to live on this planet in the future. Too many problems have been piling up and the existing institutions have been unable to resolve them. Uh, this is the, the gist of the initiative Putin uh, put forward two years ago to convene a summit of UN Security Council permanent members. And I struggled to find very much of a problem with that. Yeah, no, uh, he's always measured and uh, he's a career diplomat. So he's been in his position for a long time, maybe yes. a couple of decades. We, on the other hand, we just rotate people in uh, every couple of years or we switch jobs every six months. The United States is with every president. Britain used to have career diplomats. Uh, these people like Peter Ford, for instance. Yes. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I don't see as many of these people around. Certainly, they don't have any influence uh, in terms of policy. Right. Uh, so then, let's look at uh, Dmitry Medvedev's uh, YouTube, uh, sorry, tw uh, Telegram channel. Now, of course, it's in Russian, so we can't read it, but we can translate it. Um, so he was uh, very much giving a warning of what the potential risks are and the dangers are in the future. Uh, and I did see some uh, mainstream media taking this completely out of context with respect to threats and nuclear weapons and so on. But uh, just uh, have a look at what he said here. But what results if America succeeds in its intent uh, to cause a systemic political and economic crisis in Russia? If this huge, very complex country is weakened and splits apart, uh, the largest nuclear power with an unstable political regime, weak leadership, a collapsed economy, and the maximum number of nuclear warheads aimed at targets in the US and Europe, or in general, five or six new countries in the place of Russia, as they dreamed overseas, uh, overseas in the 90s, where such a country has, its, uh, where, sorry, where each such country has its own strategic weapon. Uh, this is the real prospect of such a strategy. And then the next goal is the total weakening of China. Uh, and then there are only a couple of steps left before the most severe global crisis, the energy and food collapse and failure of all collective security systems, uh, and soon the, the big nuclear bang, which opens the way to a new universal singularity, to the underworld. Uh, Russia will never allow such a development of events, uh, unlike American establishment, which wants uh, the end of the, our motherland. Uh, Russia wants to see the United States as a strong and intelligent country and not the last refuge of those who gradually fall into senile insanity. Uh, a responsible state that performs all the functions of a great power, a state that is trying to solve its many internal problems and does not undermine the development of other countries. All this is possible. Again, I'm struggling to criticize that. Sure, that's that's real statesmanship in uh, in terms of what he's saying there. Uh, he's certainly wanting to see more of an idealized version of what we're seeing instead of the rules-based international order. If you don't follow our rules, then you're, we're going to basically uh, cancel you, which is what yes. they've attempted to do. So there's this question of international law. What uh, And this is what we're saying. Putin's a war criminal. This is the new talking point of the last a couple of weeks. We're accumulating evidence. We're going to try Putin in The Hague and do a Slobodan Milosevic. Okay, so they tried this with Bashar al-Assad. It didn't work. Uh, Assad hasn't gone to The Hague. There's been no war crimes. They have a hard time pinning war crimes on Assad, and they will also have a hard time doing this with Putin, especially with this particular conflict. The talking points in the West are Putin is attacking civilians. This is what the American commentators, all the retired generals were saying. He's just trying to kill as many civilians as possible. We do not see any evidence for this. And by the way, I'm not alone. There were leaks from the Pentagon in the last couple of days that confirmed this. So it seems that the sane ones, the, the adults in the Pentagon, are basically now leaking their real assessments 
uh, trying to counter some of these appointees and these war hawks like Jake Sullivan right. and these people that are surrounding the Biden administration. So uh, we're saying, oh, he vi Putin violated the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Okay, it's a violation of international law. That is probably untrue, absolutely. But so is all the other conflicts that the West has been involved in. Right. This is the top international relations scholar, uh, arguably, in the United States. His name's John Mearsheimer. Uh, and he gave a recent online uh, symposium where he spoke. And this is what he said about the issue of international law. And we will elaborate this. Uh, we'll elaborate on this after we hear this comment. Listen to this. And, and what's morally or legally uh, permissible in the international system. I think that in international politics, states usually pay attention to international law and they pay attention to moral precepts as long as they're in their strategic interests. But if there's a conflict between international law and a country's strategic interests, the country will always privilege its strategic interests and international law and human rights will be pushed off the table. This is why I think it's not very helpful to talk about rights. Uh, when you talk about whether Russia has the right to have a buffer state or Ukraine has the right to have its own foreign policy, these are concepts that, in my opinion, get you into all sorts of trouble. In the international system, might makes right. And the United States would never tolerate a situation where Canada or Mexico invited, in a legal way, China to bring military forces into Toronto or Mexico City. We have a Monroe Doctrine, which is in our strategic interest. And our Monroe Doctrine says no distant great power is allowed to put military forces in the Western Hemisphere, period, end of story. What the Russians are doing here is they're basically articulating their own version of the Monroe Doctrine. They're saying you cannot turn Ukraine into a Western bastion on our border. It has nothing to do with rights, right? doesn't matter whether Ukraine has the right to do this or that. We're saying they can't do it. Just like we're saying Cuba can't inv invite the Soviets to bring military forces into the Western Hemisphere. So for me, when you talk about great power politics, rights in the final analysis just don't matter. Might makes right. And the United States is a mighty powerful country. It's a mighty powerful country on purpose, and it does whatever it thinks is in its strategic interest. And if the rights say that's okay to do, good. But if the rights are at odds with what's in our strategic interest, we do what's in our strategic interest. So important concept there. You told you the main takeaway. That's called realism in the School of International Relations or, right. or Politics and Philosophy, the realistic view of great power politics. It's always been that way throughout history, uh, but we try to impose our liberal internationalist version of this to enforce, selectively enforce international law when it suits us against people that we deem to be our enemies or countries that we want to, say, uh, do a regime change operation in.
Right. That's the basic gist of what he's saying there. Absolutely true. So I've we, we, we've, we've devised a little bit of a, a chart here. We're going to look at some different military operations here. So that what's the point of this? To say, well, if one military action is illegitimate, then another is, how do we come to that conclusion? So we just cherry-picked a couple of things here. Obviously, Ukraine 2022, that's at the top of the list. That's Russia uh, intervening militarily against Ukraine. Uh, and then we've got Syria here. Those are the two cruise missile strikes there by the U.S. coalition. We've got Yemen. That's effectively a U.S.-U.K. Uh, war uh, with Saudi Arabia that's been waged since 2015. We've got Libya, Iraq, 20, uh, 2003, Afghanistan, 2001, Yugoslavia. So international law. Which of these violated international law? Well, of course, this one by the letter does. Uh, the, the Russians have violated international law. Syria, both cruise missile strikes by the U.S. for its alleged chemical weapons, where they didn't have any evidence of any chemical weapons. Those are both violations of international law. The Yemen war is a violation of international law by all of its participants. Libya, the bombing of Libya in 2011, that's a violation of international law by all of the NATO partners uh, who were involved in that operation. Iraq, 2003, that's mainly the U.S. and U.K. front-running that. Uh, that's a massive violation of international law. Afghanistan, 2001, that is a violation of international law because Afghanistan did not attack, did not attack the United States. Despite what everybody dreams about and tries to put together in terms of their uh, logical gymnastics, Afghanistan did not attack the U.S. on 9-11. That much we know. We don't know a lot about 9-11, but that much we know. Yugoslavia, the bombing of Yugoslavia by NATO in 1999, that's a violation of international law. So on this score, all guilty, all even. So we can pretty much cancel that one out, right? Okay. I accept that Russia is only responsible for one on that list and, and the West is responsible for all the rest. <laughs> That's a good point, Mike. Yes, a little bit uneven distribution there, right? So UN Security Council resolution. So did these parties go to the UN to try to get a resolution uh, to try to pursue a peace process? Well, straight off the bat, yes, Russia did. It's called uh, Resolution 2202. In 2015, this was a mandate by the Security Council to uh, endorse and pursue the Minsk Accords yeah. for Donbass, the Minsk peace process. We'll put an asterisk next to it because it wasn't explicit in terms of it, this, this doesn't justify Russia's military operation in February of this month. But they did go through the UN Security Council process early on, very early in fact. What, how many years ago? 2015. Yeah. Seven years ago. So, but we'll put an asterisk next to it because it's not as, as explicit uh, uh, UN Security Council use of force, okay? Yeah. But neither are some of the others. Syria, United States and Syria, Britain was involved in that as well. No, they didn't get anything from the UN Security Council. Neither did for the Yemen war. And for the Libyan war, they did, but we'll put an asterisk. That's UN Security Council Resolution 1973. It wasn't meant to be a bombing resolution. It was meant to tie into uh, what was what, what concerns for human rights violations and a no-fly zone. The no-fly zone got, got uh, turned into a bombing zone by NATO. Okay, so that's why I put an asterisk next to that. So I think in terms of Mike Parity, the Ukrainian-Russian situation, the Libya situation, f fairly even in terms of their ambiguity. 
on the UN Security Council level. Of course, this is all debatable. We're happy to have that debate in the chat or, or by email. Okay, Iraq, 2003, nothing. They'd got nothing, and that was completely illegal and egregious. Now, Afghanistan, again, actress here, uh, they condemned terrorism and said something needs to be done to stamp out the terrorism. It wasn't an explicit UN Security Council resolution to basically bomb and occupy uh, Afghanistan. NATO got in on the back end of that and basically occupied for 20 years under the NATO flag. Yeah. Okay, but again, we're, you can see we're using critical thinking skills here, something our politicians don't like doing. Yugoslavia, no, nothing in the UN Security Council. Of course they didn't get anything. Okay, next category, humanitarian imperative or responsibility to protect using a Western term. Did Russia invoke this? Did they have a case for it? Yes, 100%. Why? Because it was tied to the Minsk peace process. So that's very clear. There is an actual R2P imperative with Russia's military operation. This is beyond debate. You can go read the UN resolution yourself. It's all in there, okay, and the reports. Syria, 2017, 2018, nothing. Yemen, nothing. No, so Saudi had no humanitarian imperative. It was a political regime change and partition war backed by the U.S. and Britain, yeah. okay, and the UAE. Libya, no, there wasn't any humanitarian imperative. This has been disproven many times. This was cooked up. This was a case that was uh, amped up, and a lot of fake news uh, was created to create this impression that the international community needs to act to stop a genocide in Libya. Turns out that that was never going to happen. This was a war on Libya. This was a regime change war, and this is the way most uh, sane historians are looking at it. Okay, Iraq. What was the humanitarian imperative there? They said there were weapons of mass destruction. Saddam was going to uh, use them on his own people. Or I don't know what, what, what the deal was there. There doesn't seem to be that much. Mm -hmm. Okay, more damage was done by the war. Uh, Afghanistan, 2001. What was the humanitarian imperative? In no, they weren't saving any Afghan well, lives. The humanitarian imperative was to get uh, opium back on the streets as quickly as possible, or to save the women, because the women were being, you know, uh, oppressed by the Taliban. That's what they did retrospectively in the West. That's the the case that they made. Yugoslavia. What was the humanitarian imperative? Now, some people are going to argue with this and say, no, this Srebrenica massacre. The Albanian massacre, a lot of the, well, the Albanian massacre that they said happened. Well, there's scant evidence uh, now years later uh, to, to show that that was actually the case. So what did they do? This was absolutely a decapitation operation by NATO. That's what it was. Uh, so here we go. Now let's look at the incident death toll, okay? What, what drew Russia in? 14,000 total deaths in the Donbass, i.e. those are including troops on both sides and civilians and children. So again, this bolsters that case. Uh, what was there in Syria? Chemical weapons. Was there a chemical weapons attack? No evidence of. There's no real credible evidence that there was. In Yemen, what was the Saudi, uh, what was the incident death toll that they came in to? No, nothing. Uh, Libya, what was it? It's, it's debatable. The, a lot of this was innuendo at the time. Iraq, what did Saddam do to, to draw in the invasion? Nothing. Now, Afghanistan, you could say 9-11, 3,000 people got killed uh, in New York. So if you believe the official narrative, then we'll give 3,000 in that category as the justification to, to stamp out this terrorist threat in Afghanistan. So they scored a point there. Yugoslavia, uh, well, again, 
What was the incident death toll? That is so difficult to determine. Why? Because this was a civil war as well. Okay. And by the way, this was a civil war that was ignited by Western powers at the end of the day. So we don't want to get too deep into the weeds of the Yugoslavian analysis. Maybe it's not appropriate for such a simple chart like this, but we're just giving you a kind of an evaluation of what we're looking at here. So immediate national security threat. Was NATO arming uh, its neighbor and its leader saying he wants nukes and wants to join NATO and the Donbass massacres? Is that a national security threat for Russia? Yes, that's probably a legitimate national security threat. Was the chemical attacks in Syria, the alleged chemical attacks, was that a direct national security threat for the US and Britain? No, it wasn't. N neither for Yemen, not for Libya, not for Iraq, not for Afghanistan, not really if you think about the, the, the truth of the Afghan situation. Yugoslavia, absolutely not. So we even handicapped NATO. Was there a NATO consensus? Of course, there wasn't for Russia. They're not in NATO. There wasn't anything in Syria, nothing in Yemen. Yes, Libya had a NATO kind of consensus there that they rode in on. So we'll give them a handicap point. Uh, Iraq, nothing. Afghanistan, yes, we'll give them a handicap point. And then Yugoslavia, yeah, they got a NATO consensus. That's a special column. We're handicapping the West, okay, just to be fair. So let's score this up. Legitimacy of the war. What is a just war? What makes a just war? Let's score this. Uh, Russia has scored a four. In terms of legitimacy in comparison to other conflicts by Western powers in the last two, uh, 20 years, Russia scores four. Uh, U.S. scores zero on Syria, uh, zero on Yemen. Britain and the U.S. score zero on Yemen. Uh, two on Libya, that's, a, that's with a NATO handicap. Uh, Iraq, zero, right across the board, nothing. Afghanistan, three. We'll give them a three with a NATO handicap point, and then one for Yugoslavia. So that's, that's if you want to score this up and compare conflicts and compare accusations about this, that, and the other, that's what you get. And we want to pay attention to that. That's not a high score there, Mike. That's a really, really poor score. And of course, this is what Russia is going to point to. And just briefly, I know we're going slightly over time, but I think it's important also uh, to, to draw your attention to this. So again, military operations, estimated civilian death toll. What are we looking at here? Right now, according to the UN and NGOs, 1,000 but on both sides, this includes the Donbass, I believe, okay? So it's hard to differentiate between which side is killing who, but this is the number that the international organizations are giving roughly right now today, uh, and that's the first 30 days, okay, of the Ukraine war. Syria, 2017, 2018, that's two days of missiles, 95 uh, uh, de deaths. Some of those were military, but again, that was unprovoked, so th those are all casualties. Yemen, th th this is a very difficult number to, to, to determine, okay? But uh, some people are estimating over the last seven years, 131,000 dead. Civilians. Yes, civilians, yes. yeah. And, and also, you can't count the combatants because a lot of them are, are civilian militia as well. They're just defending their villages against uh, a, mil a superior military force. Uh, Libya, 403, that's in seven months of NATO's bombing, but also arming jihadis on the ground too. That's not fully tabulated. That's a difficult figure uh, to, to get a full uh, account of, but that's what the international organizations are saying. We're drawing these figures from the various mainstream international 
organizations. Now, Iraq, first 30 days. This is important. Let's compare that to Ukraine. 7,000 civilians dead. Okay, so the death toll in Iraq, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, wasn't very uh, good. And of course, you've got to add some extra zeros on that in, at the end of the day. Oh, yes. If we want to go back to Gulf War One, I, I didn't even include that yeah. in terms of deaths from sanctions. Uh, we didn't even go there. But again, that's estimated as high as 500,000 to a million. Yeah. Madeleine Albright, who passed away yesterday, she made a few choice comments on how that was worth it. All those Iraqi children dying. But anyway... Afghanistan, first eight months, 3,600 uh, civilians here. This is from the NATO bombing run there. And Yugoslavia, 75 days of NATO bombing, 528. So, you know, looking at that, and, and so this is really about sizing up and saying, we're comparing these conflicts, okay? We're not justifying any particular war. We're just asking people to look at this in a more analytical way. Uh, and in a more evenly handed way to understand that what's happening in Ukraine uh, isn't an isolated incident yes. uh, in terms of the world of war and uh, in terms of conflict and, and which one is more legitimate. We, we need to ask this question, which of these wars is more, is more of a just war? That should be an open question and should be able, we should be able to debate this. And we do this by doing the sort of comparisons which we just showed you right there. And again, you can go deeper. We're just giving you a very quick surface analysis on that. But we could go a lot deeper into the meta. We didn't uh, cite every single source for all those figures, but a lot of those are widely reported. I drew from the UN, Human Rights Watch, and some of the other uh, Air Wars was another mm. organization. So again, we could do a more detailed analysis on this, but I think hopefully you get the picture. Yes. Okay. Well, look, we are over time, so we've got to leave it there. Thank you very much for that, Patrick. That was fantastic. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, today. And uh, we'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Hope you have a great weekend, and uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.